Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. When I was denied access to the men's bathroom and told that I could only use the gender-neutral bathroom, it was very isolating. It was very humiliating. And it felt like my school had really sent a signal to the rest of the school population that I'm somehow different. I didn't really need that. (laughs) This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Alex. On the last two editions of Outcasting, we spoke with Paul Castillo of Lambda Legal about Title IX and its protections of transgender students in schools. At Outcasting, we like to combine the knowledge of experts with personal accounts from people affected by issues. And so on this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Andrew speaks with Drew Adams, a transgender high school student who sued his school over bathroom use, and Tara Borelli, an attorney at Lambda Legal who worked on Drew's case. They discuss trans students' rights, how the case went, and what the process of suing Drew's school was like. Along with the rest of our programs, this series on Title IX is available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Drew Adams and Tara Borelli, welcome to Outcasting. Thank you. Good to be here. Drew, you identify as transgender? Yes. So tell us about how you first came out at school and how you were initially received. Well, I transitioned um, in the summer before high school actually started. So right after eighth grade, right after middle school, I came out as transgender. And I did all of the social transition stuff. Like I got a haircut, got new clothes, and started being referred to as he, him. So when I started high school, I was already living as the boy that I am. That includes using the restroom and stuff like that. The transition to high school from middle school was really smooth, and if anybody had a problem with me as a transgender student, they didn't vocalize it. So then how did this lead up to you being denied access to the boys' restroom? I had been using the men's room for about six weeks when school started. After that, I was pulled out of class and told to go to the guidance office, where I was surrounded by three guidance counselors who told me that I was no longer allowed to use the men's bathroom. They told me that I instead had to use the gender-neutral bathroom in the nurse's office. Do you know what made them make that decision? According to them, there was an anonymous complaint filed about me, just me being in the bathroom. How did being denied access to the boys' restroom make you feel that your rights were being violated? When I was denied access to the men's bathroom and told that I could only use the gender-neutral bathroom, it was very isolating, first off. Um, it was very humiliating because I had to walk past men's bathrooms to get to the special gender-neutral bathroom. And it felt like my school had really sent a signal to me, first off, that I'm not, that they don't see me as a real boy or as worthy of being in the same spaces as cisgender men. It also sent a signal to the rest of the school population that I'm somehow different. And I had enough going on at the beginning of high school. I didn't really need that. (laughs) What other kinds of things are you saying that you had going on at the beginning of high school? Classes, social life, tests, normal school stuff. And on top of that, I had to worry about where I used the bathroom. Yeah, so just sort of an extra stressor. Yeah. So a lot of people who oppose trans people using the proper restrooms argue that being in the same restroom as a trans person puts them in danger or violates their rights. What do you say to that? Trans people 
don't do anything in the bathroom that a cis person would do. All we want to do in the bathroom is go into the bathroom, use the bathroom, wash our hands, and leave. We're not posing a safety threat to anybody. If I'm going to be completely honest, I think we are the ones in danger more than any cis person would be by our presence. Trans people are attacked in bathrooms fairly frequently. So Tara, to take this from a legal perspective, how do sort of the rights or claims of rights of people who don't want to be in the same bathrooms as trans people compare legally to a trans person's right to use the correct bathroom? Well, it's really a myth that that these are kind of different interests are pitted against each other. Really what these cases are about is the right of trans students to equally access facilities just like any other student. And there might be some small handful of students who might fear what they don't know, what they don't understand, but that doesn't create any sort of right under the law to block students like Drew from being treated equally. So the right of a trans person to use the bathroom has a stronger legal standing then? Well, I think actually what I'm saying is even a little bit different, which is there is no court that has recognized a right not to share a restroom with a trans person. And that's really what the claim boils down to or what the argument boils down to on the other side. When you look at their arguments at the core, they're saying, we do not want to have to share common space with trans people. In essence, we want to erase them from common spaces and common life. And no court has recognized a right to do that. Drew, what led you to decide to take legal action? I took legal action or My mom and I, more accurately, decided to reach out to Lambda Legal because we had nowhere else to turn. We started arguing for my right to use the men's bathroom by meeting with administrators at my school and then administrators at the district, and we couldn't get help from there. They just said the district was just too conservative and no one would help us. So we reached out to the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education under President Obama in 2016, and there was an investigation And we don't know what happened with that investigation because Trump was elected and we lost our support at the government level. So we were out of options. And so my mom reached out to Lambda Legal. All right. So Tara, how did you and Lambda Legal choose to frame the case in court once this case came to you? Well, really, it it was fairly straightforward. We had an excellent roadmap for this case because Courts have actually been considering the claims of transgender plaintiffs for many, many years. And so we were able to rely on a a growing and, at this point, almost overwhelming body of case law recognizing that discriminating against a transgender person just because they're transgender really amounts to nothing more than impermissible sex discrimination. And that's exactly what the trial court found here. So what laws specifically protect Drew's right to use the proper restroom? Well, there were two legal tools that we could use in Drew's case. The first one was the federal constitution, and in particular, the Equal Protection Clause. This constitutional guarantee protects students in public schools and means that they have a right to be treated equally without discrimination on the basis of sex. Additionally, we were able to invoke a federal statute called Title IX, And this statute was passed to make sure that students could have equal educational opportunity in schools without sex discrimination. So the core legal question under both of those legal tools was really the same, which was, was the school discriminating against Drew on the basis of his sex? And we actually think that the answer to that question is is really obvious. 
no matter how you ask this question, whether it's about how does the school view Drew's gender, uh, what what gender-specific restroom is he allowed to use or excluded from, you can't even ask these questions without talking about sex. And that's what made this impermissible sex discrimination. So going into it, what aspects of this case specifically did you think were the most compelling or most likely to lead to a victory? Well, we we had the opportunity to put on a trial uh, for our, our judge. And really the place that I couldn't wait to start was with Drew's story. I believe that when fair-minded people simply listen to students, listen to them tell their stories, and talk about the way that they are profoundly hurt when their schools discriminate against them in ways both concrete and intangible, that we win every time. And that was certainly what happened here. Drew took the stand and gave extraordinary testimony about what it was like to have to make a walk of shame past the boys' restroom to the special restrooms that he was allowed to use. And I think the judge clearly understood the sort of harms that that inflicts and that the school had no good reason to do that to Drew or to any other transgender student. So, Drew, can you tell us a little bit about that testimony you made? It was just the same story I've told about how the school treated me, how that made me feel about who I am as a person and my transition. People talk about taking the stand as this big, scary thing, but it's really not that scary if you're just telling your story. So, Tara, what were the school's main arguments against allowing Drew his right to use the boys' restroom? None of them worked very well. (laughs) Um, They would try one, and when that didn't work, they would try another one. Uh, They did invoke the safety arguments that that we hear all too often in these sorts of contexts and uh, first tried to argue that it would be dangerous for other students if someone like Drew could use the boys' restroom. And then I think they quickly realized that that wasn't going to get them very far because all of the evidence shows that actually it's transgender students who are more likely to be the victims of harassment or sometimes even violence in restrooms. And that truly all transgender students are trying to do is get through their day. So they shifted and said, well, actually, we've got another safety argument. And that argument is that we're actually we're just so concerned for the safety of our transgender students, that we really need to sequester them away from other students because they might get hurt in the bathroom. And the obvious answer to that is schools have a duty to protect all students, to make sure they're safe at school, and they can't fulfill that duty by singling out a class of students and saying, you're not fit to use common restrooms. You have to go somewhere else because you might be in danger, but we won't protect you from it. And of course, what the evidence showed here is Drew's uh, peers at school had absolutely no trouble accepting him for precisely who he was, the person they've always known, which is just Drew. So Drew, what was the ultimate outcome of the case? We won, which is fantastic. We won on both Title IX and Equal Protection Clause, which means that there is now a huge trial that set precedent that says that trans students are protected by those laws and by the Constitution which is fantastic. And on a personal level, winning the case means that I don't have to worry about where I use the bathroom during school. All I have to worry about are my college applications, AP exams, tests, and social life. So Tara, was this case relatively unique in in sort of its setting of precedent, or was there an existing precedent that this case was mostly based on? Both, actually. 
There had been several cases before this one where really brave transgender students stood up in court for their rights and won beautiful decisions that recognized their equal humanity and common dignity. But there hadn't been a case yet that had actually gone to trial. And that was what set this case apart. And I heard Drew earlier being very modest and saying that it wasn't hard to take the stand. But it is a really big deal to be a teenager and to have your deposition taken and to have to appear in a federal courthouse and sit on the stand and explain to a federal judge and a court reporter, um, you know, everything that happened to you and why it made you feel like the school was singling you out as a lesser student, as a lesser person than your peers. That's a very, very big deal. And lots of these other cases had involved powerful written testimony, but Drew did an extraordinary job telling his story on the spot, on the stand, and really is to be commended for for how he did that. Um, the judge actually, this was really a lovely moment, said that Drew was one of the top witnesses that, that he's had in his courtroom. And I think that's just a credit to Drew because it's not easy to lay yourself bare in a federal courtroom and to set yourself up to be cross-examined, which of course is what Drew had to go through in this case. But it all really served this larger purpose of allowing the trial court judge to receive evidence, which is his job, and to test credibility of the witnesses and figuring out who's telling the truth and then put it all into a decision that applies the prior precedents uh, and, and applies it to this new situation and these new facts and, and gets to the right decision, which is exactly what the judge did here. I want to clarify that taking the stand was not that difficult compared to the hours of prep, deposition, and deposition prep. That whole process, I would never wish on anyone in the entire world. So can you tell us a little bit about what that process was like, Drew? So I go into this conference room and they tell me, close the door, be quiet. We're not supposed to be in here. We just grabbed an open conference room. I hope you don't mind. I go, okay, sure. We're squatting in a conference room preparing for a deposition. That's cool. And I, I leave the conference room to get some water or something. And there's also an anime competition, like an anime convention going on. So there's people dressed up as like anime characters walking around. And here I am in like a button up shirt and slacks talking about how like all of the worst things that's ever happened to me in my life in this deposition prep in a conference room that we're not supposed to be in ordering breakfast. <laughs> yeah. So anything else about like sort of what that process was like in general? Um, maybe a word of warning to people who use social media. They find it. All of it. Yeah. Can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. I mean, people always joke about how, oh, nothing you ever posted on the internet will ever go away, ever. I found that out the hard way. When my lawyers showed me large quantities of my old social media posts and asked me to talk about them. And I didn't really want to talk about what I thought when I was 15 or 14. But there I was, talking about old social media posts most of which were jokes or memes that I just had to explain, which was a little bit awkward, you know, on a video call with like four or five attorneys explaining memes that could look weird to judges. It was just another one of those like instances where I had to really examine what I was doing and why I was there and how I got there. So basically what was going on essentially, to my understanding, is that you had to sort of go through all of 
pretty much every single possible assault on your character that you could find to be prepared in case the um, sort of other side used that against you in court. Is that right, Drew? Yes. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Andrew is talking with Drew Adams, a transgender student, and Tara Borelli, an attorney at Lambda Legal about their lawsuit against Drew's high school over its refusal to allow him to use the boys' bathroom. Tara, did the school appeal the decision? The school did appeal the decision to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, so why was this? Well, great question. Um, I, I think the trial court decision in this case was so thorough and comprehensive that I would hope that it would have answered all of the questions or doubts that the school had. Uh, But they have the right to appeal, and they exercise that right. And so we are defending Drew's win at the 11th Circuit. So what's the current status of that right now? So briefing recently concluded in front of the 11th Circuit, and we're now just waiting for the court to set oral argument, uh, which we believe that that they will do. Um, There isn't necessarily a guarantee that any given case will have argument, but we imagine that this might be the kind of case where they would want to hear from the parties and be able to ask questions. So do you basically just have to sort of go back through the entire process that you went through initially? Well, it's a little bit different in the sense that there is no trial, and so you you appear in front of a panel of three judges, and you're there to answer any questions they have about whether the trial court got it right after hearing all that evidence and rendering a decision. So it really is the, the lawyers arguing about the law and whether the trial court made the right findings below. So Drew, at least with sort of the tentative outcome so far, are you satisfied with that? Well, I mean, I won. I, I, yeah, I'm satisfied with that. <laughs> so, you know, sort of how do you feel about having litigated this case and how has it affected you? This case did a lot for me. It was very challenging, but I'm a lot stronger because of it. I've got some great stories to tell because of it. I've got 20 new best friends who are all attorneys. (laughs) And honestly, I'm a lot more mature because of it. And I tell this joke a lot, but um, I like to joke that there's nothing that can mature someone more than being surrounded by lawyers for nine months. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine so. (laughs) I know, I love it. And I can say Drew made us a a little more youthful. (laughs) <laughs> so I guess you form sort of a bond, I guess, from all this, all this, uh, this whole process that you've had to go through together. Of course. <laughs> and I was going to say, how could we not? Drew was um, exceptional to work with, you know, an absolutely wonderful client, but also just an amazing human being. And I know the lawyers on the team all felt so inspired when, when we thought we were having a hard day or we were tired, we would think about what Drew had to cope with and, you know, how Drew had to get through his day. And it, it just made us feel so passionate and driven. So we felt we felt really lucky to get to know him. So, Drew, what was the response in your local community to the ruling? Was there any, you know, animosity or backlash in school? Honestly, no one cares. Unless you're LGBT or know someone who's trans, this really doesn't impact very many people. It's monumental for me. And for the other trans kids at my school, but unless you're trans, this really doesn't impact you. So the other kids don't really care that much. 
and that's kind of how I like it. So it was sort of like that complaint really just came from maybe one person and everyone else was fine with it? Yeah, basically. So, Tara, in what court was the case brought? Was it state or federal? It was brought in a a federal uh, trial court. So does that make a difference in terms of like the precedent that it sets? Yes and no. Um, So this ruling was a trial court decision and it technically doesn't bind other courts. But the growing body of law in this area is such that courts across the country who are being called upon to decide these cases look very carefully at what other judges have done. And this opinion coming as it did after a trial, I think will carry particular weight, you know, across the country as other judges look to it as they've already begun to do. So we've talked a little bit about sort of how it went in the courtroom, but how did you develop this case in court? You know, it it really was straightforward in the sense that we knew that we had sex discrimination protections to work with. And in fact, here in the 11th Circuit, where Drew lives, we had a decision that Lambda Legal had won a number of years ago on behalf of a woman named Vandy Beth Glenn. And she is this inspiring trans woman who was a legislative proofreader for the Georgia legislature. And when she informed her employer that she was going to transition, she was fired. And Lambda Legal sued on her behalf and won at the 11th Circuit. So there's this incredibly strong precedent in this circuit saying that discrimination against transgender people is sex discrimination and it's wrong, it's unlawful. And so we knew that all we had to do was persuade the court that students like Drew are no less protected by the law than Vandy Beth Glenn was. And then we brought in additional witnesses to support Drew's case, uh, including school administrators in um, other states and, and, and in Florida who could come in and say, well, we've been treating our transgender students equally for years, and we've had no problems at all. To the contrary, it has made our school community stronger, and it allows everyone the opportunity to thrive. So, Drew, what kinds of questions did you face during the trial? I faced all, all sorts of stuff. Um, when I was on the stand, I talked about my childhood, about how I knew I was trans, about how I transitioned, what I've had done medically, what I want to do in the future, what, what I do at school, my classes, my schedule, extracurriculars, literally my entire life, honestly. So, Tara, who were the witnesses other than Drew, and what kinds of questions did they get? Well, you know, the the really interesting thing was that because this was a bench trial, meaning that the trial happened in front of a judge instead of a jury, it allowed our judge extra freedom to be able to ask his own questions of the witnesses. Typically, a witness gets put on the stand and there, there's a direct examination designed to elicit, you know, their testimony, and then they get cross-examined, and, and then there's redirect. Um, but our judge broke in uh, periodically when he had his own follow-up questions, and that was really valuable and important because it allowed him to get right to the heart of the things that, that he was wondering about. And he was very candid with all of us and said in the courtroom several times that, this issue seemed new to him, that it was unfamiliar, and that he didn't think that it was an easy issue. But we knew that once he heard the testimony from all of these witnesses, that actually it would start to seem more and more simple. 
because we we really think that it is just simply about equal dignity um, for students who deserve the same opportunity to thrive as anyone else. So who are the other witnesses? We had several different kinds of witnesses. We had experts who offered testimony, and they helped educate the court about what it means to be transgender and the fact that there are, there are really clear treatment protocols for youth who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria and that an, a critical, indispensable part of the treatment is that you must be given the opportunity to live every aspect of your life in accordance with your true sex, your, your gender identity. And so we had them testify that, in fact, the school was interfering with the doctor's orders when the school stepped in and blocked Drew from using the boys' restroom because it's, it's simply part of what the medical profession recognizes by consensus now is required to treat transgender students well. And we had two um, Broward witnesses testify. Broward um, public schools, they've been treating their transgender students equally for years and years and have an enormous school system, actually the sixth largest in the country. And so they could speak to having hundreds of thousands of students in a system where transgender students had been treated equally for a very long time and about how well it worked and how smooth it was to simply treat everybody the same way. So just to kind of sum up, anything to add? I think one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about working to vindicate the rights of students like Drew is because Lambda Legal maintains a help desk where we get calls from trans students um, year after year. And we can see from these calls what an extraordinary difference it makes in a student's life if they can be treated as the person that they are and have the same educational opportunity as all other students. And we've also seen the way that the trajectories of, of trans students' lives are are altered sometimes permanently by discrimination, including students who, you know, suffer um, uh, until they can't stand it any longer because they're harassed because the school is essentially singling them out for differential treatment and students see that as a powerful invitation and do the same. And we've seen students drop out of school, leave school, um, and, and the effect on their lives is incalculable. And no one deserves that. Everyone deserves the same opportunity. And, and that's why we do this at Lambda Legal. Drew, what do you think is the most important about protecting the rights of you and other young trans people to use correct bathrooms and other gendered facilities in schools? Well, one thing I've learned in high school especially, and I've, I've got a lot of transgender friends, most of us don't have the supportive families that I have. And for kids who don't have a supportive family, school is really the only place they can express themselves and that they can be who they are. And if their school's not supportive and their family's not supportive, who else do they have? So students really need schools to step up and be there for them, especially trans students who might not have support anywhere else. Drew Adams and Tara Borelli, thank you so much for sharing this story. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. You can listen to this interview, along with the rest of our series about Title IX, on our website, outcastingmedia.org. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Andrew, 
Dhruv, Amelie, Dante, Lucas, and me, Alex. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Alex. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks. Thanks.